0: Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Thank you all for coming today and taking the time to join us for this presentation food friend or foe using diet to your advantage with our guest, Dr. Jason Gagne, who has joined us for a few webinars in the past, and he is a board-certified veterinary nutritionist at Purina. We really presented this and decided to come up with this topic today because of feedback from members of our community. You want to hear more about canine nutrition, especially food allergies, so that was kind of the reasoning behind this presentation today. You know, food allergies can be really frustrating for pet owners, veterinarians alike, and they often share clinical signs with environmental allergies, so they can be really difficult to differentiate what's actually causing them. So this presentation is going to really talk about the prevalence and diagnostic approach to food allergy, focusing on the elimination diet and supporting evidence to integrate and maximize the benefit of diet into a successful treatment plan. And as always, like I said, this was requested by you. So please continue giving us feedback on topics that you would like to hear us cover in the future because it's always very helpful for us. And during the Q&A segment of this presentation, we're going to be prioritizing the previously submitted questions from our community first. When we announced this about a week ago, we received some really great questions from all of you. So we're going to be prioritizing answering those at the end of this. And then beyond those, we'll do our best to answer anything that comes in live through the chat. So of course, use the chat to ask any of your questions and we will do our best to get to those. And before I kick things off, I just want to share a little bit more information about Good Dog for anyone who is joining us that might not be familiar with who we are and what we do. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them by advocating for dog breeders, educating the public and promoting canine health and responsible dog ownership. We are a secure online community created just for dog breeders, and we are completely free for dog breeders as well. We use the power of technology to help good breeders really level up their breeding programs by providing them with tools like our secure payment system to protect them from scams, software to post your available litters, and connect with really amazing good dog applicants to find great homes for your pups. And we also offer additional breeder business resources like webinars about navigating taxes As they relate to dog breeders, that's been a very popular one, search engine optimization, and much more. So if you are not yet a member of our community, we would absolutely love to have you join us and we invite you to learn more at gooddog.com slash join. And with all of that, I will pass things off to Dr. Ritter to tell us a little bit more about Dr. Gagne and his background and get the presentation started.
1: Thank you very much. We're so excited for this. Thank you everyone for joining us. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Gagne here. Dr. Jason Gagne is a board-certified veterinary nutritionist and is Purina's director of veterinary technical communications, where he leads scientific innovation and product development for the Purina Pro Plan veterinary diets brand. Dr. Gagne works closely with innovation and renovation of dietary formulations, developing clinical trials, and sales and marketing. Prior to and throughout his residency at Cornell, he served as an associate veterinarian in a small animal practice in Syracuse, New York. Dr. Gagne has offered several publications in veterinary journals and textbooks, given scientific presentations at the regional and national level, taught a series of courses at Cornell, and serves as a scientific reviewer for leading journals and the American Kennel Club Canine Health Foundation. With that being said, we'll turn it over to you, Dr. Gagne. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ritter, and thank you to all of the good dog people and the opportunity to partner with you guys, first of all. It's always a pleasure and truly appreciate the opportunity. Also appreciate the opportunity for all of you to be here today and those that maybe don't have the opportunity to be here today, but watch this after the fact. So again, as mentioned, I am a board-certified veterinary nutritionist. I am employed by Purina. So I will be talking a bit about food allergy, veterinary medicine. We'll start off with a little bit about allergies in general at first. And then really the point of the presentation is really to drill down into that food allergy and that diagnostic approach, as I mentioned, and then how diet can actually be your friend rather than your foe in this presentation. And I will have a mention of a couple different Purina products along the way that have been trialed and have been shown to be successful and efficacious at their usage. So hopping into this presentation, just acknowledging allergic dermatitis and causing those skin disorders and in the case of food allergy also causing a little bit of gastrointestinal too but the three most common causes of allergic dermatitis listed in order of prevalence at times of year would be the flea allergy where we're allergic to the protein in the flea saliva atopy which is more that environmental allergy think grass ragweed pollen etc and then food allergy so flea allergy and atopy probably are the two most prevalent in the canine population, and at times, depending on where you live and a time of year, they kind of rival each other for who's number one and number two. The food allergy, though, while lower prevalence, truly is very important, and food, which is more of a natural therapy, can be your friend there and be part of that therapeutic plan, and while may not be uh, 100% of the solve in some cases, depending on if we're talking about skin and or GI signs, it definitely plays a role at either replacing medications at times or decreasing those medications and therefore the side effect of those medications. So going into each one of these will address flea allergy. Then The remainder of this presentation will be about that food allergy. So when we talk about flea allergy, we are talking about that protein in the flea saliva. So as the flea is taking the blood, feeding on the blood, it is also depositing within its saliva a protein that the dog is allergic to. And that is manifested in those skin manifestation that we all know. But really, the solution here is to use flea prevention. And again, that depends on time of year. That depends on where you're located, et cetera, on that treatment plan. I can actually, as a nutritionist, make an argument that there are certain foods that can be beneficial depending on how far this has gotten and how much the dog may have scratched themselves, excoriated themselves. If it's gone on long enough, unfortunately, that food can actually be part of a treatment plan there as well due to the higher protein for the wound healing aspect, due to the higher amount of omega-3s that may be in a therapeutic food to decrease that inflammation and so forth. Skin barrier components like vitamins A, zinc, biotin, etc. As we look at atopy, that environmental allergy, this does tend to have a genetic predisposition for many dogs. Most cases are immune or IgE. That's that antibody on a mast cell that is going to cause the skin manifestation. Most cases are immune mediated. It does tend to be seasonal. So grass, ragweed, pollen, et cetera, have their seasons. Unfortunately, though, some dogs do go year round and they may be allergic to something in the spring, and then at times, you know, we get later in the year, close the windows of the house, and they notice the dust more often at that point, and it's not diluted out in the environment as much. So they may be year-round, unfortunately. And if the atopy is year-round, this is kind of what could make it difficult to differentiate, or another reason that it could be difficult to differentiate from the food allergy. Not to mention that the clinical signs and the locations on the body of food allergy are very, very similar to where the clinical manifestation of uh, environmental allergy is. So getting into what adverse food reactions are, or AFRs, it is a term to say there's something aberrant going on. Something is occurring that should not, and the dog is having GI and or skin signs. These adverse food reactions can be non-immune based or immune based. So addressing the left side of the screen first here, the non-immunologic or non-immune comes in a couple different flavors, if you will. One of them is dietary indiscretion. The dog got into the garbage can, and now they're having a reaction to that. Okay, fair enough. Food intolerance is the other one, and this is where we begin to split hairs of what is the difference here between how we would treat a food intolerance and a food allergy. There's not very much difference there, but what a food intolerance is comes in three different manifestations of metabolic toxicity and pharmacologic. The metabolic, for example, let's say you have somebody that is lactose intolerant. They don't have the lactase enzyme to break down dairy. So they're lactose intolerant, as we term them. And they should avoid lactose or dairy products in general. May not be a good idea to go to Starbucks and get that frappuccino. Don't go far. Then you move over to the other side of the slide here. And this is where we're going to spend our time in this presentation. The immunologic side that is. A true food allergy, again, that could be IgE, the antibody on the mast cell mediated, or non-IgE mediated. And part of the difference there being how quickly they manifest their signs. Are they manifesting them within minutes to hours, or are they manifesting them two weeks later? So moving on here, food allergy, it could develop at any age. It's been reported in the literature, anywhere between four months of age to 17 years old. Those clinical signs usually are year-round, and think about that. If you're eating a food that you're allergic to, it doesn't matter if it's spring, summer, winter, fall. It does often, for some unlucky dogs, it does occur in conjunction with environmental allergies or atopic dermatitis, and the clinical signs for both of them may be both skin and GI related. So you're talking typically the ears, and the ears, that as it's termed, otitis externa, that outer ear infection could just be an outer ear infection. But if it starts to repeat over time, we have to begin to think that there's another root cause of that. And in fact, otitis externa has been shown to be the number one sign, the manifestation of food allergy and may actually be the only sign. So it is something to keep in mind if you're seeing that on a recurring basis. Other than that, sometimes we see kind of the axillary or the armpit area, the groin area or inguinal, and again, of course, the ears, the rears, and licking of the paws a lot of times, which again, tend to be the places, the locations of environmental allergy too. Just to highlight the GI signs, I often ask folks, how common are GI signs in adverse food reactions? I get a range of answers on that. But as you can see here, this has been reported in this citation as early as 2006, and The percentage still holds true as we look at it in clinical trials since then. And that number is up to 65% of dogs will have both sides. Veterinary medicine is advancing here. They've done a really good job at advancing over the years. And having the gastroenterologist take a better look at the skin and having the dermatologist ask those questions about bowel and vomiting. So people are starting to notice that a bit better. The common GI signs that we see with AFRs include the following list. I don't think vomiting or diarrhea is a surprise there, but oftentimes people think their dogs just are gassy, you know, that flatulence. That could be a GI sign of something else. Frequent defecation, even if it is a normal bowel movement in the perfectly formed stool, if they're frequently defecating, that too is not normal. Borborygmus that's those sounds that you hear like the stomach gurgling that occurs in all of us as we finish a meal we all hear our stomachs gurgling but when I say borborygmus here I mean you could hear the dog in the other room I did have an owner many years ago during my nutrition residency where she would call me up and every little sign and we'd like to maintain that contact we want to know that dogs are doing well but sometimes when you get an attentive owner and she would tell me that I can hear the dog's stomach gurgling as I hold my dog to my ear. She's pressing her ear up. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't put your ear on the dog. The dog's going to think you're a little weird. But I'm talking about I can hear the dog's gurgling from the other room hours after a meal. And then lastly, abdominal pain manifesting that discomfort after a dog eats for the next few hours. So we have natural defenses to food allergy as well. This shouldn't happen, and fortunately for the great population of canines out there, they do not have this issue because they are able to digest. Protein particles are broken down. Think of the intact protein, and as it's broken down and digested, it's going to break down into these smaller green balls, let's say. So once they're broken down into those smaller green balls, they will absorb at that point, and they will not cause a reaction. Secondly. We also have the mucosal barrier, as it's termed. Think about your inside the intestine here and the surface area of these finger-like projections that are termed villi, actually. They are that surface area that's going to absorb the nutrients. If there is an intact protein seen in this green squiggly here, it'll be kicked back and that won't go through because if it did go through, you'd have a problem. Manifest analogy. And then lastly, there's what's termed the GALT, or the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. 70% of your immune system is within your gut. So that's really telling you something. there. The immune system and the GI system are intricately linked. Because if you think about it, all food is not yourself. It is all foreign to you. And this speaks to when we're born and how we develop an oral tolerance. And it's that galt, or that gut-associated lymphoid tissue, that immune system, that is actually suppressing the response to food so that we can eat and we can enjoy the experience of eating and absorb the nutrients from it. At times, though, there could be a breakdown in any one of these parts. So, for example, if the insect protein doesn't break down and we have a compromise in digestion, that could result in a food hypersensitivity that becomes an allergy. If we have a breakdown in the mucosal barrier, that surface area that's supposed to absorb or prevent intact proteins from being absorbed, if it's damaged, that could result in the development of a food allergy. And then lastly, if there's something wrong with the immune system, that too. So any one of these or a combination of them could lead to the development of a food allergy But first, what happens is, is there's a process known as sensitization. In other words, we become sensitized to that protein. So for argument's sake, we'll pick on chicken here and say, we have chicken. The chicken protein got absorbed. It went across that barrier. And then there's this immune cell that kind of picks it up and says, you're a little odd. I don't know what you are, but I'm going to take a piece of it with this allergen fragment. And I'm going to present it to my friend over here, the T lymphocyte of the immune system. And the T lymphocyte is going to turn around and say, I don't know what you are. Let's go over to the B cell. And then the B cell is just going to say, hey, you know what? I don't like this allergen fragment. I'm going to create an antibody to it, this Y-shaped item. And that's the IgE. That's the immunoglobulin E specific to that chicken protein that I'm going to put, and I'm going to stick it on a mast cell. And this mast cell is what contains all of these granules in here that you're probably familiar with histamine because we talked about histamine with allergies in general. So going back to our intact protein, the chicken protein comes in the second time. So the first time, you get sensitized. And then the second time you eat the chicken, the chicken, for whatever reason, crosses that barrier as an intact protein. It didn't get broken down. And then it's going to bind to those IgE, those antibodies, on the mast cell. And the mast cell is going to release its histamine. It's going to undergo this process known as degranulation. The point is, it releases the histamine, and we get the clinical manifestation that results in the inflammation, the pruritus, which is the itchiness, and then the GI disturbances, whether that be vomiting and or diarrhea. So again, we had an antigen come in. It bound to two or more antibodies, bridged as it's known, and it released its histamine and degranulated. And the dog now is clinically itchy and/or has GI signs. Typically, we say that any dietary protein is potentially allergenic. Every protein is on the list. Some are more prevalent than others for obvious reasons. We just happen to feed dogs chicken and beef, for example, more than we do, I don't know, ostrich. So it would be more prevalent that they would be allergic to chicken and beef. The size of the typical food allergy, the typical protein, is measured in what's called Daltons. That's anywhere between 10,000 and 70,000 Daltons in size. I will say this is just kind of a global statement that you would hear from a veterinary dermatologist. I, as a nutritionist, yeah, I somewhat agree, but I also, because I'm closer to it than a dermatologist, I would say... Egg is different than fish, is different than chicken, is different than beef, and they all have their own range. Globally, yeah, if you're less than 10,000, you should be good to go. You could, though, be greater than 70,000. So I would say, as I look at soy, for example, not many dogs are allergic to soy. But if they are allergic to soy, it's anywhere between 20,000 to 92,000. That's specific to soy. So you could see where Yeah, 10,000 covers the range on the lower end, but on the upper end, it could go a little higher. This is a publication from 2016. It still remains the most up to date review of the prevalence of what the common food allergens in both canines and felines. In the canine there, where beef, dairy, and chicken are the most prevalent, followed by the protein that you would find in wheat, and then on a 6% level, soy, and then others further down. I will point out that folks often think that corn is the biggest allergen. It's actually not. It's really low on the list, followed by egg and others. Feline, you'll see that, yes, this other category is the biggest, but if we call out specific ones, you would see that beef, fish, and chicken are the three biggest there. We can't forget that carbohydrates themselves also contain protein. Carbohydrate is, yes, it's a carbohydrate, but it too is not 100% carbohydrate. It too contains a certain amount of protein. And you could see here on this list who has the greatest percentage of protein in them, Oat growths followed by wheat, rice, etc. So if you're going to make a diet like in my world in the pet food industry, that is going to be considered therapeutic for these cases, you're going to want to go much lower and make sure you're less than protein. And that's why you'll see that therapeutic foods, if you actually look at their ingredient labels, you'll see that they contain purified starches. So corn, rice, pea, and tapioca starch are what's typically used there. When we talk about diagnosing an adverse food reaction, the gold standard and really the only reliable test is the elimination diet trial maybe we're going to get somewhere else in the future. I don't know that. I don't have that crystal ball. But today, it is the elimination diet trial, which is a little bit cumbersome. It's a laborious. It's tedious as well for owners. But it is important to communicate that and stress that up front. There are a number of other tests out there. They are all considered unreliable methods. Some people feel that they could diagnose food allergy through a serum or blood test. That may be good for environmental allergens. It is highly unreliable, though, when we're talking food allergy. Intradermal testing or, you know, the skin prick testing is a bit unreliable as well. And then so on and so forth down the list. There's actually DNA testing of hair as well. Somebody actually played a joke and then actually published a paper on it. There's companies out there that offer DNA testing of hair. Somebody actually pulled a piece of fuzz or a hair, I don't know what you want to call it, from a stuffed animal teddy bear and actually sent it into this company and found that the teddy bear was actually allergic to a number of items. It's impossible. So, do yourself a favor. If you're considering this, work with your veterinarian and discuss the elimination diet trial. Again, there is actually advancements coming in science and we may get to other methodology. But again, today it's the elimination diet trial, which we're going to now go over here. So, I have a five step process. But it's not so much about five steps. It's about the actual process and discussing this. Obtaining that dietary history, number one, is truly important. And then there were resources for this, whether you're looking at or your veterinarian's using the AHA guidelines to obtain that dietary history. Yes, it says nutrition and weight management guidelines, but that is the same guidelines that would inform you how to take a dietary history. Purina Institute is the scientific arm of Purina that is unbranded in terms of they don't promote diets. They just talk about the science of something. So if you want to check them out, that's Institute.com. They too have something called Center Square that has nutritional and clinical assessment tools, one of them being how to take a dietary history. And then, of course, the old reliable and still great source of Wasaba, the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, has their .org site that contains a short dietary history form, and also an extended dietary history form. I personally do use that Wasava dietary history form. I do nutrition consults on the side outside of Purina because I have nothing better to do with my weekends. So I do do those dietary nutrition consults, and I use the Wasava form. I think Wasava has a great nutrition toolkit. As we get into the second step, as I had mentioned before, saying a baseline, get a baseline. What you're looking at here is what an owner would use to assess their dog's level of itchiness or pruritus, again, as it's termed. Are they extremely severe itching up at the top all the way down to I have a normal dog? Okay, so that actually is a validated system. Somebody did do this study, and as you can see, there's a citation below to validate this system, and it is used in several clinical trials since then as well. But it's usually paired with the veterinary assessment, if you were to go into the vet's office, where they use something known as the Cadici 4 system, canine atopic dermatitis extent and severity index, I prefer to say Cadici, and this too has been validated. Again, you can see all those spots that are looked at, the ears, the armpits, the groin, the paws, the mouth, and so forth. So that's skin signs, GI signs, nothing like a good validated poop chart. Everybody has a good poop chart. I go to many veterinary conferences. You wouldn't believe how many vets just continuously take fecal charts from us. It's wonderful. We should all be assessing and be familiar with our dog's fecal score. Again, even if it is a normal, which would be considered a three on this scale, but if they're defecating eight times a day, that's not normal. That's actually considered diarrhea. So diarrhea could be, yes, a liquid component to it, but it could also be how often you're defecating as well. Once you have taken the dietary history from the owner, you know what they're eating, you know how often they're eating, you know what treats they're eating, et cetera, and you've developed a baseline of skin and GI signs, then working with the veterinarian to develop a plan. Many people have dietary preferences. If you're a vegetarian, I want my dog to be vegetarian. may not be the case with cats, but we're not here to talk about cats today. So working with the client to understand the dietary preferences, then discuss eliminating the other protein sources. Communication is tremendous in this plan, and it really is the linchpin to being successful. Taking the time to discuss this up front is pivotal. I stress to my clients multiple times during my conversation, the only thing going into your dog's mouth for the next 8 to 12 weeks is this diet. And we need to discuss what supplements you're on, what medications you're on, because these things could be flavored, like beef flavored. Sometimes there's heartworm supplements that could be beef flavored, for example. That could truly ruin an elimination diet plan, and you're wasting that 8 to 12 weeks. So you need to discuss these things with your veterinarian. Are there chews and toys, dental sticks, dental chews, whatever they may be, they're gone. That's just it. They are gone during 8 to 12 weeks. If you truly want to put forth effort into this, you need to remove them and the treats actually become the diet, at least for that 8 to 12 weeks. Then you can revisit that afterward. Regular check-ins during the 8 to 12 weeks are truly important as well. I usually tell people to take a week to transition onto the diet that is recommended. And then from there, maybe the technician will be calling the owner, or the owner is taking the initiative to call the veterinary office to speak with the technician or the veterinarian. And last bullet there, discuss timeline. How many times have I already stressed? Eight to 12 weeks. As we perform the elimination diet trial, a little bit of an algorithm here. Again, I mentioned the dietary history, making sure you're removing everything else from possibility of being consumed. Accept the diet, recording the baseline assessment of the clinical signs of the GI and skin. And again, the reason you're doing that, you want to get that baseline up front, and agree with that owner and that vet to say, here's the level of itchiness, here's the level of stool softness, or the frequency of vomiting, if that's an element to this. And as you go through the eight to twelve weeks, you want to say, hey, you know what, this is decreased by fifty percent. Fifty percent, we say, is success. But honestly, if it decreased by twenty five percent, Personally, clinically, I still consider that a success. Something has worked. We must acknowledge that. The rest of them, 75% then, may still be atopy, and that may need to be worked up. The elemental diet, that is a diet that is an amino acid-based diet. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the point of this is going to be 8 to 12 weeks for dermatologic signs. We say 8 to 12 weeks in the textbook for GI signs, too. But honestly, if you don't see improvement in 2 to 4 weeks, something's very odd there. So two to four weeks for GI signs. And we should be rechecking that patient monthly. They should be coming in a couple times during this trial. If you have no response by eight to 12 weeks, then you need to consider the workup for atopy. Something's wrong there. You may want to do another food trial. That's a possibility. Maybe you just didn't use the right diet to begin with. And I know we have therapeutic diets in this realm. You know, Purina has HA. Hills and Royal Canin have their prescription diets as well in that realm that are hydrolyzed. But maybe you need to try the elemental diet that I mentioned instead. However, truly, if you have no response, start talking about atopy and think about going another route. Again, Purina has DRM, the dermatologic diet, in that case. However, on the right side, if you have a positive response that's 50% or greater in a textbook, then you stay on it. And this is going to sound crazy, but in a textbook, you get through the whole trial, you have a 50% or greater improvement. You're supposed to do what's known as a dietary challenge, where you go back now and you feed either the original kibble or canned diet, or if you feed components of what they were eating, like a piece of beef, a piece of chicken, and you would slowly reintroduce those ingredients. You would monitor for the recurrence of those clinical signs, could occur for hours up to two weeks. There's a great review paper that compiled a whole bunch of literature that showed that you will catch 90% of dogs who have food allergy. Their flare will occur within two weeks of refeeding the culprit food. So that's why you see the parentheses hours up to two weeks there in that box. And then from there, if an adverse food reaction were to occur, then you go back to feeding the appropriate diet that you were feeding before that worked. However, I'll be honest with you, I probably see most people say, why on earth would I re-challenge my dog and feed that other food again? What you told me now is working, so I'm happy to stay on that. Yeah, I can't definitively diagnose you at that point, but I kind of think I can. Got to move on from there. So the ideal elimination diet to try would be something that is non-antigenic. It's not going to stimulate an immune reaction. You're going to feed a complete and balanced food. It's going to be palatable for the dog. They're actually going to eat it. There's nothing like creating a diet on paper, and then no one eats it. Who cares? So it's got to be palatable. They got to eat it. And it's got to be convenient and fit into the lifestyle of the owner. The traditional way to go about this is the home-cooked novel protein diet. It's considered a gold standard, but I will say it is a little problematic for owners in terms of compliance. The literature there says about 25% of owners actually stay on it. It's often not complete and balanced. There's a lot of Googling that goes on in this realm. One of my colleagues published a paper in 2015 that showed that what you may find in a book, what you may find online, wherever it may be, if you're not consulting a nutritionist, 95% of what you're finding is incomplete and unbalanced and could lead to long-term nutritional deficiencies. So if you're going to go this route, make sure you are working with the appropriate expert in this realm. It's a board-certified vet nutritionist.
0: Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.